Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And we have very exciting news today because Michael got his voice back. So we've been able to record the end of our Archaeology of Daniel series. So today we'll be looking at a couple more artifacts. Speaking of which, if you've been on our Facebook page recently or you've been in Archaeology News, you'll find out that Dr. Stephen Notley and his team at El Araj in Israel actually made some really cool discoveries recently. Not related to the book of Daniel, but still related to biblical history. Um, and why am I bringing this up? Well, because we're on an archaeology video today or podcast, uh, but also because Dr. Stephen Notley is going to be one of our archaeology leaders on our Israel trip in January. We still got some room left on this trip. This is a very unique opportunity, probably a once in a lifetime for many people. But if you'd like to come with us and be with Dr. Stephen Notley and Michael Lane, and I do believe we are going to be seeing this site that he just uh, excavated with his team uh, this year. Um, you can check that out at evidenceforfaith.org slash 2023Israel or check the links in the description or in the top comment wherever you're listening to this podcast at. So uh, with that, as always, this podcast is supported by listeners just like you. If you'd like to help support this program and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence number four, faith.org slash give. And with that, we are going back into our Archaeology of Daniel series with Michael Lane. And today we're looking at the Lachish Letters. Hi, welcome to Evidence for Faith. I'm so glad you're joining me today as we're continuing our series on archaeology and the Bible pertaining to the book of Daniel. And as we've talked about so often before, Daniel is often um, not just in the, the lion's den. He's a lot of times this book is in the critic's den because it is constantly being bombarded by critics as a source showing that the Bible's not true. Yet the archaeology that we find in the book of Daniel does really support the Bible. And even on little minor details, which we're going to see about in this, this lesson here today, we're going to be talking about the Lachish letters. Lachish letters. Now, a lot of people don't even know the, uh, the city of Lachish exists in the Bible or is even in Israel. Matter of fact, every time I've gone to Israel, hardly anybody, when we go to Lachish, we're like the only people who go there on tours and stuff. Partially because it's a tell that's it's just a big tell, a big hill that was once one of the major cities. Matter of fact, it used to be the biggest city, um, the most powerful city in all the kingdom of Judah. It is mentioned a few times in the Bible and quite a few places, actually. But as we're going to be talking about, it's going to deal with the Babylonian uh, conquest. Primarily is what we're looking at because that's how it pertains to Daniel. But this city is amazing because it was a slaughter. Um, by the Assyrians. Before the Babylonians came, they slaughtered this place. Uh, the inhabitants there crucified some, beheaded, filleted, skinned. I mean, they just did terrible things to these people. And today, it's just a big tell. There hasn't been a lot of archaeology done over the years on this. But um, just recently, they have been doing some around the city gate. And there have been um, tremendous studies that have been done there, and they have found fascinating artifacts. Um, even an ancient toilet was found there. I mean, how cool is that, huh? Yeah, they had toilets back there. Um, they were stone, but they have one that they found right in the city gate. But anyway, the Bible contains abundant information concerning Nebuchadnezzar, 
A lot of, lot of documents and a lot of letters, a lot of mentioning of Nebuchadnezzar and his conquest of Jerusalem, including not just his life, but also the sacking of um, and the destruction of Solomon's temple. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned, and these things are mentioned in the books of 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Daniel. I mean, it's very well documented throughout the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed the city, destroyed the country, um, deported people, and there's just so much artifacts and stuff. And if you go to Israel and into Jerusalem, sections are still being studied around the Temple Mount today that go back to the Babylonian destruction. There's ash layers everywhere with pottery um, and all sorts of other artifacts that have been found that substantiate the time frame that it was the Babylonians who conquered the city. I mean, there's arrowheads that have been found. There's, there's all sorts of things. But anyway, what we're going to look at here today is the artifacts we're going to be talking about pertain to this assault by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And it's important because what it does is it shows accuracy again of the Bible, where people say the Bible's not accurate. Well, there's three major things that we're gonna learn in this lesson here today, showing how these things that we call the Lachish letters support the biblical account. Um, but to get started with this, um, we have to go back to 1935. There was an archeologist named J.L. Starkey who was at Lachish, the city of Lachish, which the Bab it says in the Bible, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar destroyed this city. And he was excavating, he's been one of the few um, uh, archeologists who actually studied here and did detailed study at this place. And back in 1935, while excavating at Lachish, that's where he starts finding some fascinating details of this. Now, as I said, Lachish, if you're not familiar with it, Lachish was the most powerful city, the most well-protected city in the entire kingdom of Judah. And it's located about 25 miles to the southwest of Jerusalem. Today, it's just a steep hill. That's what it is. And it's surrounded, back in those days, it was surrounded. It had a double-walled system, which was not uncommon in ancient times, to have two walls go all the way around the city to protect them. It was very well protected very well fortified. The walls were, were really strong. But in 701 BC, when the Assyrians came under King Sennacherib, this is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 18 uh, and 19, when Sennacherib came into the land of Judah, he destroyed the city and he decimated the Judean population there. But after he left, after the Assyrians were gone, because Lachish sits on a very important road, it, and it had a water source, a good well there, so they, it's a perfect place to rebuild. So they did. The Jews rebuilt, the people of Judah rebuilt this city. And um, so it was, was standing again later on when Nebuchadnezzar comes around 587 to 586 B.C. And he comes, when he returns to the Levant area and attacks Judah and the other countries around, um, he attacks the western and the southern borders of Judah. Because, why? The Bible tells us, Judah had rebelled against him. And so now he's coming to decimate the place. And what's interesting, there's two cities that are mentioned, specifically outside of Jerusalem, that are mentioned in this Babylonian assault. One is called uh, Azekah, and the other one is Lachish. Now, what interest do these little sort of unknown cities bear to us about today, having to do with all this? 
Well, these two cities are only about 10 miles apart. Because of that geographical nearness that they have to each other, they communicated. Now, they didn't have phones and stuff back then and cell phones or even like two tin cans with a string stretching 10 miles. That does work, if, by the way, if you ever want to try it. Um, they could communicate with each other, and they did it by signal fires. Maybe you've seen something like that in like Lord of the Rings or something in some of the movies. But cities would communicate with each other by signal fires. Because they were so close to each other, we know that they did this. And the Bible talks about this also. Well, Starkey, the archaeologist, he was studying at the main gate. And that's where most of the archaeology today is being done, even as we're spe I'm speaking now and doing this lesson. They're working a lot around the main gate going into this city. Now, again, we've talked about this in the past with other lessons. A gate wasn't just a doorway. It was a large, like, fort. We call it a gate. It had doors in it, but it also had rooms and stuff. So there's a lot of things, business transactions and things took place in there, um, in, in the city gates. So it's an important place inside the city and it's being excavated. Well, as Starkey was excavating this gate, and it's a huge gate there. Um, we have some beautiful pictures that um, of the, the gate. You can see there's a walkway walking up to it um, today and uh, back in ancient times too, and it was a large building. And these, this gate, as he was excavating in this area, he found 21 ostracon, 21 ostracon. Now, we've talked about what an ostracon is in the past. They're broken pieces of pottery that were then used as like post-it notes or uh, stationary. People would write things on them. Uh, store owners would write receipts on them and stuff. You just didn't throw broken pieces of pottery away like we would do today. They used them because paper was expensive, so broken pieces of pottery were great pieces to write letters and stuff on. Could you imagine getting one today? I, I have been tempted sometimes just to send somebody a broken piece of pottery and as as and write a note on it and ink and just mail it to them. Um, U.S. Mail open the thing up; they think they're getting some cool thing. They open up the box and it's just a broken piece of pottery. But I'll have a note written on it. I'm sort of I gotta do that sometime. It's just sort of fun. But anyway, <laughs> they found 21. Sorry, found 21 ostracon, and these broken pieces of pottery. Like I have one here. There's a beautiful piece that's sitting here, and this one here is one of the. This is an exact. Uh, a copy, a museum quality copy of one of the quiche letters. And um, when it reads, it actually is written on both sides. Isn't that cool? That they would write on both sides of a broken piece of pottery. Now, some parts of it are missing. We don't have the complete letter, but there is enough information on many of these that we can get a really, really good idea of what's going on. Enough of the letter has, has made it throughout the millenniums that have passed through here. So in these 21 broken ostracon, Starkey found um, what was going on in the city of Lachish during the Babylonian onslaught. Isn't this cool that we have actually recorded um, events, recorded on pieces of pottery, broken pieces of pottery. People were communicating back and forth, sending these out and getting new ones in, and they were writing details about the attack. And not just the attack itself, but what was going on in the city of Lachish. And that's what we have here. It appears that all these ostracon were written at about the same exact time um, because they mentioned some of the same names and stuff. And so there was communication between particularly Lachish in Jerusalem and also this other city, um, Essica, that we talked about before. Now, most of these letters, most of these 21 letters that were found were written by one person because the name actually appears on many of these. His name is Hoshaiah. 
And he apparently is a commander, a military commander in this area. The one that we're looking at here actually has his name appearing on it. And so it's he is writing um, a letter or a letters being written to him, talking about and asking questions, and he's responding to them about this. This communication here seems to be to inform the commander about a guy named Joash. Um, and it's also giving us some particulars that's going on inside the city. Some of these letters contain disputes. Some um, actually talk about a court martial, a uh, court martial that was set up against somebody. Um, they talk about how <laughs> how Egypt, uh, the people in Lachish, were were praying and hoping that Egypt, who was once an ally of of Judah, would come and and render assistance to the people of um, of uh, Lachish to help them fight the Babylonians and. It, it, some of these letters are talking about communication from one city to the other, like I say. Um, so we have these kind of things going on because at this time, when these letters are being written, apparently from what we can gather from reading these letters, that there's only three cities that haven't fallen. Outside of Jerusalem, Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet, but there was Lachish and there was the city of Azekah, which is the other one. Um, these three cities apparently, according to these letters, were the last ones to fall to the Babylonians. Um, and on this Ashrakhan number four, what we see here is that there's actually a mention dealing with the signal fires that I talked about before, that the signal fires uh, between Lachish and Asaka had been extinguished. Uh, at Asaka, the signal files, fires went out, thus the city had fallen the city had fell. Now we can read part of the translation on Ashrakhan number four, we can read um, and have this translated. Now, I don't speak Chaldean, but um, I can take it from a translation. This has been translated in many articles, many uh, archaeology articles. They all agree upon the translation. So let me give you what the English statements are that you see here on Astrakhan number four. Now, just quote it. May Yehovah, Yahweh if you wish, give you good news at this time. And now your servant has done everything my Lord sent me. I have written down everything you sent me. As to regards what my Lord said about Bet-Herp, there is no one there. As for, then we get some really strange names here. As for Shemakaiau and Shemameau has seized him and taken him up into the city. Your servant cannot send the witness there. Rather, it is during the morning tour that uh, that will come to you. It will be known that we are watching the signal fire of Lachish according to the code which my Lord gave us, for we cannot see Azekah. So, unquote, that's, that's basically what this is talking about. You can fill in a few things and get the idea of what's going on. But the point I'm trying to make is this. This letter substantiates what the Bible contains concerning the battles between King Nebuchadnezzar of the ba uh, Babylonians and the kingdom of Judah, that Lachish and Asaka, just as the Bible says, are the last two outpost cities to remain besides the capital of Jerusalem. So the Bible actually states this. These letters confirm what the Bible is saying. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 7, using the English Standard uh, Translation, um, when the armies of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left, Lachish and Asaka. For these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. 
So just exactly what we see on these ostracon is what we see in the letter, uh, the fourth letter of the Lachish letters. We actually see that being substantiated. What the Bible, yes, I know this is a little detail, but the thing is, you see how important this is? Because even, listen, even the little details of the Bible, like these two cities and Jerusalem are the only ones that exist out of all the other ones that are still standing, that is exactly what the Bible tells us. So little details, I mean, a lot of people expect big details, you know, maybe there, there might be problems with big details and stuff, but there aren't. If the Bible is going to make a mistake, you would think it would be, and if it wasn't true, it'd be these little small details that would really be standing out as being wrong. But no, these minute little things here, like what cities were the last ones to fall, the Bible substantiates the story, thus giving credence to the Bible. Another one of the Lachish letters that's just commonly called Lachish letter number three contains interesting information about how some men, one was a guy named Elnathan, and others fled. We're not sure by the reading of it if they fled or if they were actually sent to Egypt during the Babylonian attack in Jerusalem. Maybe being, you know, sending people to Jerusalem to or uh, to Egypt to try and get help for the Jews. We don't know what exactly what was going on. We don't have enough of the information. We just know that this fellow named El Nathan and some others were sent and, and left to go to Egypt. Now the thing is, again, the small little detail, this is in the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 26, 22, Jeremiah is living through this siege and he writes this. Jeremiah 26, 22, and then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, El Nathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him. Isn't this cool? What we see in Jeremiah 26, verse 22, is exactly substantiated by Lachish letter number three. We see the same thing. Wow, how cool is that? Oh, let's look at another one. There's Lachish letter number nine. Includes the names of several key characters found, again, in the book of Jeremiah, concerning the conquest uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Um, and this, I'm, I'm going to butcher these, I'm sure. So pardon me for this. It might be better if you look these up on your own. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 1, we come across certain names. It, it reads, now, uh, Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukol, the son of Shemaliah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah. Jeremiah is giving these names. The thing is, these, these names also appear in these Lachish letters. Other letters found at Lachish include the names of King Jehoiakim, uh, King Zedekiah, and the prophet Uriah. Daniel, too, writes that King Jehoiakim was the king of Judah during the, the sacking of Jerusalem. These Lachish letters are verifying exactly what we see as the book of Daniel opens up about the, the, uh, the city falling and stuff. And they even talk about the deportation, which the book of Daniel has mentioned in chapter 1. We see all of this falling into place. And not just from the Bible, but these Lachish letters supporting this. Now, what do these letters found at Lachish have upon the book of Daniel and apologetics besides this? Well, actually, there's three things I want to point out to you. Three distinct things that what, what we've already mentioned besides those, but let me show you really quick how cool this is. First, skeptics, and I've mentioned this before in some of the letters and I, uh, some of the lessons we've done, and I often get this 
when I go and I speak, particularly at universities, because I've had arguments, well, I shouldn't say arguments, disagreements maybe, because um, it, it's not hostile. They just try and tell me that the Hebrew people didn't even have a written language until after, after the Persians took over. Daniel's already gone. Daniel's dead and stuff by the time, because Daniel lives right up to the fall of uh, Babylon. And um, in chapter 5, we read about how the Persians took over the kingdom of the Babylonian Empire. Many professors of history at different major universities say and teach their students that the Hebrew people didn't have a written language of their own until the time of the Persians or around to give you a year, the year that they give me, that we've had this discussion with, uh, around 425 B.C. So at 425 B.C. is when they had the written language. Really? How do you explain the Lachish letters, which are written in the present tense of what was going on? These things have been dated in the ash layer of when the Babylonians were there. Over 160 years earlier is when this is taking place. Thus, these professors, I'm sorry to say, they have their information totally incorrect. The Hebrew people did have a written language over 160 years prior to the Persians. They did. These 21 letters written during the Babylonian siege were written also in a cursive script, which scholars now inform us was in use during the first temple period. So this tells us that even during the first temple period, that we Solomon's temple, during this period of time, there was this written language. So scholars are starting to finally come around, but I've still come across some when I've gone to universities that still adhere to the Hebrew people didn't have a written language to 425. Well, the Bible and all these letters show that's absolutely incorrect because the Hebrew people did have a, uh, a written language that they had way prior to the Babylonian uh, destruction. Um, so we have that. Um, thus, they had a written language. And so these prophets that you see in the Old Testament and stuff, the Old Covenant, they definitely had a language, a written language that they could write things down. Not done by oral tradition. They could write things down. Daniel actually wrote things down. So that's the first point. A second point I want to make to you. The Bible records that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and attacked, in doing so, he attacked the western most outposts and the cities before destroying Jerusalem. These letters confirm that exact same thing because um, he's attacking uh, Lachish, he's attacking the other cities, Asica and stuff. They fall before, as the Bible says, before Jerusalem fell. And Lachish would be a harder city to try and conquer than Jerusalem. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem, you probably know in the old where the old city sits, there's on the east side a very, very deep valley because it sits on the mountain. And there's a deep valley to the east, there's a deep valley to the south, there's a deep valley to the west. Jerusalem, in all the times it was conquered except for two, was always invaded uh, from the north because that's a flat plain coming over where the Temple Mount was. That's where they usually got attacked. Uh, the easiest way. Um, Pompey, when he came um, with the Romans and conquered Jerusalem, he came from that direction also. That's how it usually would fall. Um, so Jerusalem was easier to conquer than Lachish. Lachish was totally just a hill. It was just very, very steep um, hills all the way around the thing. And to this day, you can see how the Assyrians, when they came, they built siege ramps, five different siege ramps going up to the walls so they could push their battering ram machines up there to conquer the wall and, and break it down. 
and those are still standing today. I have beautiful pictures showing the stones going uh, that are sitting there, um, going making a ramp that goes up to the city of Lachish. So Lachish fell, Asica fell, and the other cities before Jerusalem, which is exactly what the Bible says. This confirms again the Bible. Third point I want to make to you. King Jehoiakim was indeed the ruler of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar actually attacks. He's not been replaced yet by King Zedekiah. That doesn't happen until after, the Bible says, after the fall of Jerusalem. The thing is that it's exactly what we're seeing in these letters. These letters show this exact same thing. As a matter of fact, if you look at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shimnar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then you come across chapter 5, we read about those vessels being used in a banquet. But that was a, a, another lesson that we have here. So what we have seen, the Bible is very, very accurate historically. Even, to me, this is so amazing, even to the naming of insignificant characters and what they did. It's, it's, it gets it right on there. It's important to point out this, that if the Bible, like I say, was to make a mistake, it's probably going to be more uh, a gross error with major details, but it doesn't do that either. And even the little minor details, if you're following what I'm saying here, even the little insignificant minor details, the Bible gets correct. Now, if that's the way it is, if the Bible is, is being substantiated by archaeological evidence, evidence like this, even these lesser-known Bible characters, their names and stuff, and we know these to be real people, this is amazing because what it does, these letters, ostraca, bullets, and things that we find with these different names on them, my gosh, they just keep substantiating and, and giving evidence that the Bible is true. And that's what I'm hoping you gain from this. The Bible is true. Folks, you can put your trust in this. Yes, we, we want to live on faith. We're supposed to live on faith. But the thing is, there is God has provided us with a lot of evidence, historical evidence through the field of archaeology that supports this wonderful book that we have containing 66 love letters from God. Study this carefully. Read it. Study it. Don't just read it as a novel. Study it carefully. And ask the Holy Spirit to teach you things when you read it. Because here is the treasure of life. The secrets of how to have eternal life is all found in here. So, I hope you enjoyed this lesson. And finding out that the Bible is actually very true historically. I just get so excited about this kind of stuff. And I hope you'll join us again for some more lessons on this. But until we meet again, I want you to take care and God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.